UTIs are the worst. I've been there. One year, I had eight UTIs. If you get UTIs, then you understand how awful the cycle can be. I was taking all the precautions, and cranberry products, they just never worked for me. I was desperate for a way to be proactive. It was hard on me and on my husband. It was tough to see her in pain, and I wanted to help. I'm Jenna. And I'm Spencer. With Spencer's background in biochemistry, and our shared frustration when it came to UTIs, we were inspired to start Eucora. At Eucora, we make innovative urinary tract supplements and UTI relief products. Our effective urinary tract supplements finally give you a way to be proactive. Feel like you've tried everything? We get it. We have a money-back guarantee so you can try risk-free. If you're not happy, you'll get a full refund. We're on a mission to help women get their lives back. Ready to join them? Go to Eucora.com today. Eucora.com. Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level. Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Welcome. This is Roger Stone, and this is The Roger Stone Show on WABC Radio. WABC, making AM radio great again. You can find us at 770 on the AM dial if you live in the greater New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area where I grew up, or you can listen to us at the WABCradio.com website, any place in the country. But I strongly urge you to go out and load into your phone the 77 WABC app so you don't miss any of our great WABC programming. I'm talking about Sid Rosenberg in the morning, uh, uh, who always tells it like it is, a guy who really has his fingers on the pulse of New York. We're talking about Larry Kudlow, the apostle of supply-side economics, the quarterback of Donald Trump's effort to turbocharge the American economy, which was extraordinarily successful, brought us the most robust economy in American history. Uh, we're talking about Rita Cosby, veteran broadcaster, somebody who knows the tough questions to ask, some of the most incisive reporting you can hear on radio today. Uh, my old friend, Dominic Carter. Here's a guy who understands what the people think uh, and does a great show here on WABC. If you're a night owl, you, you can't miss Frank Morano's The Other Side of Midnight. Uh, he is, uh, he's kind of thinks outside the box. He always has very intriguing uh, and extraordinary guests. You don't want to miss Frank Morano. Uh, I, I love Cindy Adams. I've only known her for 40 plus years. She is the queen of gossip. Uh, she appears on Sundays uh, here at, pardon me, Saturday, I believe, uh, but on the weekends at WABC, America's mayor, Rudy Giuliani. Uh, this guy is, uh, has a, a wealth of knowledge about politics, government, 
uh, law enforcement, what's really going on in America. You don't want to miss the Rudy Giuliani show. And of course, there is the Cats Roundtable with John's Katsimatidis himself. Uh, look, I know you're working for a living. You're busy all day. But if you tune in to the Cats Roundtable every day at 5, you get a quick recap and excellent analysis on the top stories of the day. And then on Sunday mornings at 8 a.m., the Cats Roundtable sets the day for the entire uh, Sunday for you. So you don't want to miss any of that. Uh, and therefore, I really urge you to download the WABC 77 app in your cell phone so you don't miss any of it. We have a jam-packed show for you today. Uh, uh, among our guests, economic guru, uh, mortgage and housing industry expert, Barry Habib will join us. Uh, I was with Patrick Ben David the other day, uh, legendary podcaster, uh, who told me that Barry Habib was maybe the single smartest person he knows when it comes to that industry and the economy overall. And of course, we all understand the role of the economy in the upcoming presidential election. Uh, I must tell you, I met Barry Habib several months ago in Palm Beach, uh, and I asked him about the unemployment rate. I asked him about the inflation rate. He gave me a forward-looking prediction, and he hit both of them right on the money. It was uncanny. He joins us. Uh, and then we have Colby Covington, who is uh, the, uh, a ranked uh, welterweight UFC champion, ranked number one in the welterweight division. Very shortly, we'll be fighting for the welterweight championship. Dana White, the impresario of the UFC, has said that Colby Chaos Covington is uh, up next. He's next in line to fight for the belt. Uh, that fight against uh, Jamaican-born fighter Leon Edwards. This is a very hot card. Uh, Dana White has played it close to the vest. We don't know where and when this fight is going to take place. There are a lot of rumors that it's headed to New York City, that it's going to be November 11th in Madison Square Garden. Uh, but that is, again, unconfirmed, unconfirmed. Uh, but Kobe joins us. And then... Uh, the movie uh, Sound of Freedom is red hot, and therefore uh, the actor Eduardo uh, Verastugi joins us. Uh, he is uh, an old friend of mine. Uh, he, is, uh, he is both a producer, also plays a small part uh, in this incredible movie, which is breaking box, record, uh, box office records across the country. It is, of course, based on a true story regarding FBI agent Tim Ballard uh, and the fight against the scourge of child sex trafficking. So sex trafficking. So Eduardo joins us today uh, on the Roger Stone Show. You're not going to want to miss any of this, folks. Uh, you know, I have talked a lot here on the Roger Stone Show about censorship. Uh, I have been a victim of censorship because my political views uh, are, uh, you know, are unconventional sometimes. Uh, they're politically incorrect. I talk a lot of politics here on WABC. By the way, the political views exposed are strictly mine. I am responsible for them. 
they don't reflect necessarily in any way the, the position of the ownership or the management of WABC. They're my views, but I think people tune into the Roger Stone Show because I tell you what I really think. Uh, but uh, in 2017, I was banned for life on Twitter. I was never really given a reason. They said that I violated their community standards, whatever that is. Now, you can go on Twitter and threaten to assassinate the president of the United States. And no, you, you won't be banned. You won't be, uh, you won't be blocked. Uh, if you stand up for what you believe in, you're in great danger. Today, I am banned for life on Facebook. No explanation. Uh, I'm banned for life on Instagram. No explanation there either. I'm banned for life on YouTube. You can watch my daily show, uh, The Stone Zone, by going to Rumble, because you can't find it uh, on YouTube. Just go to stonezone.live, uh, and you can get a rundown on where you can see my daily show. But I must tell you that the House uh, uh, Oversight Committee uh, had Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, in as a witness this week, testifying about the war of censorship that has been waged against him. Uh, and uh, 103 House Democrats co-signed a letter objecting to Robert Kennedy testifying in a hearing about censorship. So in other words, they wanted to censor him from speaking at a hearing to explore the problem and the atrocity of censorship. In all honesty, I watched this a couple times. Uh, his opening statement where he, where he threw out a prepared remarks and spoke from the heart was one of the most riveting, thrilling, inspirational moments I have heard in American politics in 40 years. Here's Robert Kennedy. Say something. I think that's, that's more important and it goes directly to what you talked about, ranking member, which is the, the, the need, the, the, this toxic polarization that is destroying our country today. And how do we deal with that? We are more, this kind of division is more dangerous for our country than any time since the American Civil War. And how do we deal with that? How are we going to, every Democrat on this committee believes that we need to end that polarization. Do you think you can do that by censoring people? I'm telling you, you cannot. You, that only aggravates and amplifies yep. the problem. We need to start being kind to each other. We need to start being respectful to each other. We need to start restoring the comedy to this chamber and, and, and to the rest of America. But it has to start here. My uncle, Edward Kennedy, has more legislation with his name on it than any senator in United States history. Why is that? Because he was able to reach across the aisle, because he didn't deal in insults, because he didn't try to censor people. He brought home people who were antithetical to what he believed in. He came home almost every weekend with people like Orrin Hatch to our house at the compound in Hyannisport. At that time, Orrin Hatch to me was like Darth Vader because I was an environmentalist. And I was saying, why, why is Teddy bringing this guy home? But he knew that he was effective because he understood that comedy and respect 
and kindness and compassion and empathy for other people is the way that we have the only way to restore the function in this, in this chamber. But more importantly, today we need to give an example in the leadership of our country of being respectful to each other. If you think I said something that's anti-Semitic, let's talk about the details. I'm telling you all the things that I'm accused of right now by you. And in this letter are distortions, they're misrepresentations. I didn't say those things. There's fragments that I said, but I denounce anybody who, is, who uses the words that I have said to imply something that is negative about people who are Jewish. I never said those things. And I want to point out also that the chairman pointed to Dennis Kucinich who's fighting behind me. There is no two people in, in the country who feel differently about, more differently about American politics than these two people. <laughs> and yet they were friends. Dennis attended his children's basketball games, attended his daughter's wedding. This is what we need, how we need to start treating each other in this country. We have to stop trying to destroy each other, to marginalize, to vilify, to gaslight each other. We have to find that place inside of ourselves of light, of empathy, of compassion, and above all, we need to elevate the Constitution of the United States, which was written for hard times. And that has to be the premier compass for all of our activities. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you. Mr. Chairman. Uh, that was Robert F. Kennedy Jr., a Democratic candidate for the presidency of the United States. Uh, I need to say, unfortunately, there's a huge amount of misinformation, all right, but that misinformation comes uh, from folks uh, who don't like him or don't like me. You can find it all over Twitter. I'm a Republican. I'm supporting Donald Trump for president. I am 100% on the Trump train. That doesn't mean that I can't be interested, that I can't follow the candidacy of Robert Kennedy. I think it's extraordinarily intriguing. But those who say that I urged him to run, well, I barely know the man. He's an acquaintance, I guess you would say. He's not a close friend. I've met him once in my entire life at a conference at which we both spoke, and there's a picture floating around the Internet. But that doesn't mean I urged him to run. It doesn't mean that he is uh, somehow, uh, uh, you know, that he's a ringer for the Republicans. It doesn't mean that I'm advising his campaign, which I most definitely am not. Uh, but I do think he has a number of really compelling things to say that you don't hear from many Democrats today. He wants to seal our southern border. Uh, he, he's for health freedom. He's against mandatory vaccination. Uh, he is very deeply skeptical about the war in Ukraine and the fact that we continue to ship billions and billions of dollars and weapons of destruction to the Ukrainian government uh, with no tracking or accountability in terms of what's happening to that money, and more importantly, no ongoing peace talks. That's what's really disturbing to me. We, we've learned only recently that between the Ukrainian government and the Russian government, there were two different sets of uh, negotiated settlement peace talks, uh, and uh, it appeared that the killing would stop but that both of those peace agreements were nixed 
by the U.S. State Department under Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. It's mind-boggling. We are, we, are, we are careening towards World War III. I mean, one of the smartest things Donald Trump said was, you need to have a dialogue with anyone on the planet who has nuclear weapons. You, you don't want to freeze them out. You want to be talking to them. It's dangerous not to be talking to him. He got criticized roundly for visiting North Korea, for opening a dialogue with the dictator there. But America became a, at least for a short period, a safer place. And he convinced the North Korean dictator to put his nuclear weapons development program temporarily on hold. It is among Donald Trump's greatest achievements. So I, I am one who believes in dialogue. I am not an anti-interventionist. I do think that there are times around the globe when our, our inherent national interests are present. But I'm more worried about our border than I am Ukraine's border. And I, I make no bones about it. This recent decision to give cluster bombs uh, to the Ukrainians, these are deadly. <clears throat> As I understand it, while some of these bombs, when they're dropped or, or, or planted, they detonate, they can sometimes sit there for 20 years, 10 years, 15 years, and, and, and kill and maim people long after the conflict is over. There are still people being killed and maimed uh, by the remnants of cluster bombs uh, in, in Iran and in Afghanistan even today. This decision to give this weaponry to Ukraine just tiptoes us closer and closer to World War III. If you're just tuning in, this is The Roger Stone Show at WABC Radio. You're going to want to grab that WABC 77 WABC app for your cell phone because you're not going to want to miss any of The Roger Stone Show now three to five uh, every Sunday. If you're listening right now, let me ask you to go to your cell phone and uh, call a friend uh, or text a friend, family member, someone else who's interested and tell them what a great show we have here at WABC. Uh, if they're out of town, they can go to the WABCradio.com website uh, and listen to the whole thing. They can listen now or they can listen uh, later, but you're not going to want to miss any of the extraordinary programming that we have here uh, at WABC. You know, I've been in politics uh, a long time, uh, and I remember Watergate extremely well. Uh, we were told we were in a uh, we were in a constitutional crisis that uh, the Watergate break-in was somehow uh, a threat to our democracy, uh, and uh, there is little question because there was no internet at that time, because you had essentially a monolithic media, three broadcast television networks, uh, two or three national, which were really regional, newspapers. Uh, news magazines at the time were very, very influential. Time, uh, Newsweek, uh, Life, Look, all long gone. The Newsweek you see online, folks, that, that means somebody Actually, the people at the Daily Beast bought the bought the uh, the trademark, uh, bought the logo. That's not the Newsweek magazine of old. Uh, but if Richard Nixon were alive today, 
he would be spinning in his grave. That's because Senator Chuck Grassley this week released FD-1023 documents from the FBI that show that a Ukrainian oligarch claims he was coerced into paying off Joe and Hunter Biden. Uh, he has asserted that he paid a $10 million bribe, paid directly uh, in wires individually to Joe and Hunter uh, in order to induce them to pressure the Ukrainian government to fire a prosecutor who was looking into the Burisma Energy Company, uh, which was specifically employing and paying Hunter Biden. Uh, this uh, Ukrainian executive, Zhilakshevsky, uh, also said he didn't want to pay the Bidens, but he was essentially extorted to pay them. Uh, he said that he had a total of 17 audio recordings involving the Bidens, including Joe himself, and that these recordings prove that he was coerced into paying them. Zolchevsky was asked uh, by the Congress about the payments and states that he did not send the money directly to Joe Biden, but the way he sent it, uh, essentially filtering it through various LLCs uh, and, uh, uh, and other uh, business fronts, that it would take investigators 10 years to follow the money. Now, the, the fact that this informant gave all of this information to the uh, FBI uh, and the IRS was also aware uh, several years ago, demonstrates to me that in the second Ukrainian impeachment, Donald Trump was impeached for the crimes of Joe Biden. I mean, if you remember, Joe Biden, I think was speaking actually to the World Economic Forum, bragged about the fact uh, that he that he threatened to withhold $1 billion in aid to Ukraine unless they fired the prosecutor who was investigating his son. That's why they were so desperate to get rid of Donald Trump. Donald Trump made a perfectly proper phone call when he asked President Zelensky to look into these now proven allegations. Now the only reason that these forms were released are because FBI Director Christopher Wray has been threatened with contempt proceedings by Chairman James Comer, and finally the document has been released. What would happen if uh, Donald Trump Jr. or Eric Trump uh, received uh, multi-million dollar wires from Ukraine, from Russia, from Romania, uh, from other foreign countries, or even American companies without the proper reporting. There's been a smear out there saying, oh, well, Roger Stone, he got a, he got a soft deal from the IRS. Really? I, my wife and I owe $2 million to the IRS from one year, 2006. Three quarters of that amount is interest and penalties. See, I didn't make anywhere near what you may have thought I made. Uh, and I was sued in a civil suit by the IRS because those taxes on which I made eight years of monthly payments without ever missing a payment were about to be extinguished under the law. I got no break on interest. I got no break on penalties. 
I will be paying monthly payments to the IRS for the rest of my life. See, my last name is not Biden. If, you're, if your last name is Biden, you get a much, much better deal. But any allegation that Roger Stone and his wife uh, failed to report income is false or that we failed to accurately report any asset is false. No, when I was targeted in the Mueller witch hunt, I lost it all. My home, my savings, most of our insurance, uh, my car, my ability to travel, my ability to speak and write uh, and make a living. But this idea that I got any kind of break or any soft treatment from the IRS is complete nonsense. If anything, the average voter uh, in offer and compromise would be able to negotiate down some break on interest and penalties, but not for me. So that's the politicization of the IRS, uh, or I should say the Justice Department, right there. Uh, it, it, this smear is really aggravating because it is so extraordinarily untrue. <clears throat> I do want to tell you that we have just recently completely revamped my website at stonezone.com, stonezone.com. If you go there, you can see all uh, the recent shows uh, from uh, stonezone.live. Now, my show is on at the same time the Cats Roundtable is on, so you can go back and watch my show uh, in, the, in the reruns, in the archives, uh, by going to stonezone.com. Uh, you can also visit the store there and get your Roger Stone Did Nothing Wrong t-shirt uh, or your signed Roger Stone. That is a perfectly beautiful paperweight, a stone for which I have signed my name. Also, my various best-selling books, The Man Who Killed Kennedy, The Case Against LBJ, New York Times bestseller, one of the best books on the Kennedy assassination, my book, Stone's Rules. This is, uh, doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or a liberal or a conservative or a libertarian or a progressive, or maybe you're not into politics at all. Uh, and it doesn't really matter whether your chosen avocation is agriculture or tech or fashion uh, or retail or entertainment. Uh, these are the rules of the road. These are the things I have learned in 40 years uh, in the arena. Uh, uh, and it has an introduction by my good friend, Tucker Carlson. Both of those available, signed by going to stonezone.com uh, in the shop. By the way, you can subscribe. It is absolutely free. Uh, we also always let you know in advance uh, what our coming lineup here is at WABC. Every Sunday, we're here from 3 to 5 in Sunday afternoons. If you want to see who's going to be on the show, you can go to stonezone.com. We usually tell you by Thursday, we go out of our way to bring you the guests that you're not hearing any place else. So uh, please uh, stop by Stone Zone today. You can subscribe. It's absolutely free. There's no obligation, but uh, if you're into all things Roger Stone, uh, we would appreciate your stopping by and checking it out. Uh, again, folks, uh, please take a moment to download that WABC 77 uh, app for your cell phone uh, because we have the best lineup in AM radio 
anywhere in the country. It's been my pleasure to be on with Sid Rosenberg in the morning. I was on with Larry Kudlow, the apostle of supply-side economics, the apostle of economic growth, uh, also a man who's given me great spiritual advice when my family and I were going through hell. He's here every Saturday afternoon. Uh, you don't want to miss any of this, folks, so please download the WABC 77 WABC radio app in your cell phone and you won't miss anything. We've got a great show for you today. Uh, stand by for Barry Habib, the economic guru, uh, Colby Covington, the uh, the welterweight champion from, uh, pardon me, the welterweight contender for the UFC, uh, and Eduardo Vera Stugi, the Mexican actor, uh, producer of this red hot movie, uh, Sound of Freedom. I'm going to put the question to him because there's a rumor going around that he's planning on running for president of Mexico. I don't think he's been asked this anyplace else, but I'm going to ask him. So stay tuned for that great lineup. Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level. Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. This is The Roger Stone Show here on WABC Radio. WABC, making AM radio great again. My guest now is Barry Habib. He is the chief executive order of MBS Highway and is without any question perhaps the most undisputed expert on the mortgage and housing markets in the United States. He's also a shrewd observer of the American economy and in the brief time that I have known him I must say every one of his economic predictions has come absolutely true. Uh, he's a motivational speaker. He's also a very very successful uh, Broadway theatrical uh, producer, uh, and he joins us now on The Roger Stone Show. Barry, welcome. Well, you're way too kind, Roger, and it's an honor to be with you. So, uh, you know, I think it was uh, in 1992 that James Carville, the famous Democratic political strategist, said, it's the economy, stupid, in terms of the impact on a presidential election. Uh, and there's no doubt whatsoever that the 2024 presidential election is going to be greatly impacted uh, by the economy, in addition, of course, to other war and peace issues. Uh, and therefore, uh, it is within that framework that I have uh, my questions for you today. Uh, let's start with this one. Uh, what do you think the impact of the trillions of dollars of stimulus money that's been pumped into the market by the Biden administration when it comes to uh, uh, overall, uh, has been on the uh, on the single-family home prices uh, in the current market. Well, there's no doubt there's a lot of uh, different factors influencing home values. 
The predominant one is a lack of supply and overwhelming demand. Now, that overwhelming demand has been helped by Fed actions to reduce interest rates, but also certainly by the stimulus that came into play. The $1.9 trillion Biden budget buster stimulus plan uh, is still trickling through. And then certainly the what, what was called you know, the Inflation Reduction Act, that definitely added to inflation. And when you do have inflation, one of the things that does inflate is home values. Now, listen, there's, there's a good and bad side of it, right? If you, if you own a home, you don't mind seeing that. But certainly if you're trying to purchase a home or move up, it does create some headwinds. So with companies like BlackRock and others buying up tremendous swaths of single-family homes across the country, try to turn them into rental properties. Do you see this trend by corporate America as a danger to citizens who desire to become homeowners themselves? Well, you know, here's the thing. I think BlackRock is trying to fill a void right now. And there's clearly a need for more space for renters, which is why we've seen that. However, given that, I think that's mostly in the rearview mirror object because we had seen rents going up astoundingly at 18% a year for new rentals, meaning it's like your first time, and then renewal rents were going up close to 15% a year. And that's what drove a lot of the inflation numbers. But those numbers have kind of abated significantly. When you blend all rate rental rates together on a year-over-year basis, they've come way down to just 3.4%, and they seem to be heading lower. Part of this is added, added supply coming on the market from builders, and part of it is exactly what you said by companies like BlackRock and others purchasing properties, converting them to rentals because there is a need for that. Now, remember that real estate's local and rental demand's local. I'm giving you these numbers nationwide, so certainly in certain areas, there's going to be a greater demand for rental, and, and filling that void is still going to be something that has to be done. You know, Chase Wilson, who's a political consultant that I often work with, really has tagged the lack of supply and availability of affordable housing as a sleeper issue, particularly particularly among younger voters in the country, an issue that Robert Kennedy has talked about some, an issue I think President Trump needs to talk about. Uh, I, I really think that this is uh, going to have the capacity uh, the candidate who says something in this area, constructive, is going to be, have the capacity to win millions of voters. Overall, where do you see home prices going in the next 18 months? Well, first of all, I think that you've, you've given great insight, and I just want to underscore what you said, because I think you've nailed it, as you usually do. But here's the thing. Now, Joe Biden was really beating the drum on the fact that what we need is we need to help first-time home buyers. We need to give them grants. We need to give them $25,000. What he wanted to do. But this is where his either lack of, of understanding or personal desires being put above what's good for the country comes into play, because that would exacerbate the problem. Once again, Roger, we have too many buyers and not enough inventory. How do you solve the problem? You don't solve the problem by juicing the buyers. That would only exacerbate it and drive prices much higher. This was experimented by President Obama in 2010, and it was an enormous failure. It artificially lifted home values for a period of time, and then they came crashing down below where they were. 
So what President Obama did was he actually made people influenced to purchase homes because of the tax credit that they were getting. They said, oh, I'm getting a great deal, but they wound up paying significantly higher prices. And once the tax credit ended in April of that year, prices without that tax credit influence, all he did was bring demand forward. And with that void, prices came tumbling down. So those poor people that purchased a home thinking that, oh, I was getting a great deal, they were left holding the bag. And what President Biden has been trying to do is repeat that same playbook, which is going to only create an exacerbation of our current problem and disaster. Now, it might sound good if you're a voter that, hey, look, he's going to give me this, but it is not a wise decision. And before I talk about where we see the housing market, just one more point, please, on this, is that when we take a look at what could solve the problem, and it's something that most politicians won't touch, is that you have to help builders because what's happened is the cost to construct lower price homes is if, if there's not an impetus to do that, I'm not I'm not incented to build a lower price home. I can make much more money on a higher priced home, but the demand is needed on the lower priced environment. So what I would hope that someone would take a look at is and say, how do we address this problem? Can we if we're going to throw money at this, let's throw money at subsidizing the construction and rewarding and the incentive to make it affordable for builders to construct lower priced homes and now let people have the dream of home ownership at a better level. Okay, where's home values gone? So I apologize for that. So I'm gonna answer the question that you, um, you had asked me and, the, and home values are going to continue higher. Now, many people thought I was crazy last year when everyone was predicting a crash and people were saying prices are gonna drop 20%. It's, Roger, the housing market is different. People don't really understand the housing market. It's a different animal. We had forecasted 5.5% appreciation last year, and everybody thought we were nuts. It came in at 6%. So not quite a bullseye, but pretty darn close. Our forecast for this year is 5.8% appreciation. And again, everybody thought we were kind of you know off our rocker, but here we are. And from the beginning of the year in 2023 to halfway through the year, we've already seen about 3 to 4% price appreciation. So we're probably going to continue to see that. There's no crash coming. It's it's a basic issue of supply and demand. Too many home, too many buyers, not enough homes. If you're just tuning in, folks, this is WABC Radio, and this is the Roger Stone Show, and we're talking to Barry Habib, Chief Executive Officer of MBS Highway, and widely recognized as probably the leading authority on mortgages and housing in the United States. You know, Barry, I must tell you, you would never, ever make it in politics. You know why? You have this tremendous tendency to actually answer the question which you were asked. <laughs> let, let me ask you. Thanks, Roger. Uh, let, let me ask you this. Are these loans uh, known as Nina loans, no income, no asset loans, growing again in popularity uh, since it will generate increased revenues for the financial industry in the short run? You know, Roger, there's really not an appetite for those, and we're not seeing those occur. They were very prevalent in 2003, 2004, and that's when they started to become widely used. And basically, what you could do is you could buy a home without verifying your income, without verifying your assets, without even if you had a job with truly marginal credit, a credit score of 580 would pass. And if, if you don't know on a relative basis, the average score of people in the United States today is about 660, 670. And for people getting mortgage today, it's about 720. 
So 580 is dramatically below what would be deemed good credit. So they were approving that and no skin in the game, Roger. People were able to purchase homes with nothing down. So with no verification mechanisms, what was going on was people were buying homes completely speculatively. No intention to live there, no intention to rent it. Just, I'm going to buy this home in this hot housing market. And it was almost like tulip mania. You buy it and you're dumping it to the next sucker, right? So that happened and home prices did continue to go up through 2004, 2005. But in 2006, as everybody jumped on this bandwagon, the music stopped. Builders built more homes than they ever had in our history, 2 million homes. And then what was also interesting was it was like a perfect storm because in 2006, demand for housing dropped precipitously. And there was a reason for that. You see, the median age of a first-time home buyer is 33 years old. In 2006, there was a dearth of 33-year-olds, and there's a reason for that. It's because in 1973, 33 years earlier, birth rates dropped due to Roe v. Wade. So as Roe v. Wade came to be in 1973, much fewer births by like a million. And as a result, in 2006, at the prime age of buying a home, there were a million fewer buyers at the same time that builders built a half a million more homes than they ever built at the same time. So it was a house of cards that collapsed under this weight. Now, we don't have anything like that today, and there is not an appetite for those types of Nina loans that you mentioned. So lenders are standing clear of those. There isn't an appetite in the secondary market for them. So that's good news. We're not seeing those type of speculative loans. So to sum this up, would be fair to say you do not see a repeat of the trend that ended up in the market crash of 2009, where borrowers were not required to show income or assets in order to qualify for loans. You're 100% right. I do see that. So I see three basic differences. One is the one that you just perfectly articulated, is that there is not going to be those type of easy money loans, which then deteriorate the quality of credit and could cause borrowers to default easily. So that's not not there anymore. The second is, as I mentioned, the demographic situation. 2007, 2008, you had much too much building, not enough demand. We have the opposite here today. And then perhaps underscoring it all is the third point. Back in 2007, available inventory to purchase was 4 million homes. Today, it's a little over a million. The latest data shows a million and 80,000 homes. So roughly 3 million fewer homes but at the same time, since 2007, our population has grown by over 30 million. So think about 30 million more people fighting over 3 million fewer homes. You would see that that's why we're having upside pressure. So when I saw you several months ago in Palm Beach, uh, you told me that Republicans should not count on the inflation rate uh, as an issue. Uh, you made an eerily accurate prediction about where the inflation numbers would go. But in the same conversation, you told me that you thought that the current administration and the Fed were really jiggering the employment numbers. Uh, talk to us about that. So thanks, Roger. That's very kind of you to mention. Yeah, we had felt strongly that while everybody was talking about as inflation as being a problem, the way that we have analyzed the numbers um, we felt that we'd be around 3% um, with the release of the July 12th CPI. And I believe you and I were chatting back in the month of May, so we thought it'd be around the corner when inflation was about 5%. So 
it seemed like a pretty big drop. Sure enough, we just got the most recent report, and it was 3% indeed. But when we talk about inflation, I think most of the gains are now in the rearview mirror. At this point, we will make some progress, but it's going to be bumpy. I do think that next month when we get the release for inflation numbers in, in the second week of August, that will give the numbers for July, we're not going to make hardly any progress at all. We'll make very small progress. And then you're going to have everybody come out and say, oh, inflation's stubborn. It's going to come back like the 70s. That is, don't buy that narrative. It is not true. They just don't understand how the numbers work. It is based upon comparisons from the previous year where we had a really, really low print in July of 2022. We'll get over that hump, and we will continue to make progress, but not as quick as we've made. It'll be slow and steady. But the Fed is really focused on the core rate of inflation. The core rate of inflation strips out food prices and energy prices. And this is what the Fed wants to wants to look at. Now, look, you can argue and say, well, we all experience pressure from food prices and energy prices. Shouldn't we look at that number? But we don't, you know, we, here's the rules, whether we agree with them or not, this is what the Fed wants. And the Fed says, we are gonna continue to hike rates. This is the words of Jerome Powell, who by the way, as you, as you know, he is not an economist, he is a lawyer. You know, is it a good idea to have a lawyer running the economy? I don't know. It's probably not a good idea to have someone who's an economist representing you as a lawyer. So, you know, be it what it may, now you have this lawyer who is telling us that he is going to continue to tighten the noose on the economy until we see 2% core PCE, which is the personal consumption expenditures. That's the reading. Now, Roger, I've done the math on this. We can't get there for another year. We can't, and we'd be lucky if we do. Now, the Fed's going to hike this week on the 26th, coming up. So on the 26th, you're going to get a Fed rate hike of a quarter percent. They want to do at least one more is what all of the Fed members are telling us. They continue to do this. It strangles the economy. It makes the banking situation an exacerbation because deposits are fleeing. They're going into money markets. It makes the cost of credit much more expensive, and we run on credit. So this is a fatal flaw. And the reason why they're doing this is because they're fixated on this reading. But it will take time for this reading to come down. And the main reason is because the data that they are so dependent on, and that's their words, data dependent, it lags. If you look at real-time readings, anyone can go to something called Trueflation. It's spelled like it sounds. Trueflation.com. It fluctuates every day, but I believe the most recent reading was around 2.25%, right where the Fed wants it. But that's a real-time reading that takes 10 million data points as opposed to the 80,000 the Fed looks at, which lags. So real-time, we're already there. But the Fed continues to look out the rearview mirror instead of looking through the windshield. And this is why they caused boom and bust cycles. Roger, they did the same thing in 2021. You remember Janet Yellen, who was a horrible Fed chair, and all she is now as Treasury Secretary is a salesperson for the, for the president. And what she does is she gets out there and she says, we gotta go big, we gotta go big. We gotta go big, why? Because they're trying to pump up the economy, right? But at what cost? The cost of our future. And so what they did is they make this fatal mistake. They keep interest rates too low too long. They do all this excessive quantitative easing, and they created all the inflation we have. They've created the bank failures. And now the Fed, panicked that they screwed up, is trying to reverse it 
but they're making the same fatal error in reverse. They're looking at lagging information. When they kept rates too low too long, they were looking at lagging instead of current information. Current information on rents, they were going up at 8% a year. The lagging information showed them going up at 2% a year. So therefore, they said, oh, we've got so much time. Now, you asked about the job numbers. Well, the job numbers, boy, it's a head scratcher. It's a head scratcher in a couple of different ways. You know, back in February, just four days before the State of the Union address, we get a jobs report. Now, Roger, I've just continued to scratch my head on this, but buried in the report, you have to really dig, was something called population control effect. That sounds like it should be in a sci-fi movie. And what it did was it artificially added 810,000 jobs. That's a big difference. That caused the unemployment rate to drop rather significantly. Now, were there 810,000 jobs created? They were, but they were created in the first quarter of 2022, but we were given those numbers in February of 2023. Why? I don't know. And, you know, listen, is it a coincidence that was four days before the presidential address, the State of the Union? Maybe, maybe not. Now, but every one of these jobs reports, you have to dig deep. The jobs numbers are not as strong. For example, in the last jobs number, of all the jobs created, and there was a little over 200,000 of them, 450,000 were part-time jobs. So if you net that out, that means we lost about 200,000 full-time jobs. This does not smell like a strong labor market to me if people are taking part-time and they can't get full-time jobs and we're losing full-time jobs. <clears throat> Very well said. Uh, this is why uh, I heed your advice when it comes to the economy. Now, you are not only uh, a uh, and an expert on the mortgage and housing market, but you have also produced one of the longest running, one of the most successful shows, both on Broadway and off Broadway, Rock of Ages. Uh, how would you say your experience in the mortgage industry contributed to your role uh, as a Broadway producer? Well, you know, Roger, I, I grew up like really poor. You know, my parents are immigrants. I'm first generation born here. And, uh, you know, I, I, one of the things I did as a kid, I used to sell stereo equipment out of the trunk of my car. So there's a lot of very valuable lessons that you learn when you when you kind of just hustle and you learn by trial and error. And there's, there's a lot of lessons that you learn in business. You know, one of, one, of the, one of the first things I learned as a kid selling stereos out of the trunk of my car is when something went wrong with as electronic equipment typically does, you know, here I am, this young kid, but I would give people my phone number and they would never expect that I would drive back out and replace or fix what it was, but I always did. And, you know, when you do that, um, people all of a sudden, they almost feel obligated to either buy more stuff from you or to, uh, or, or to, to refer others to you because, you know, it's just that law of reciprocity. So one of the early lessons I learned is when something goes wrong, it doesn't mean it's bad. If you handle it correctly, you could actually turn any chaotic situation or wrong situation into either a lesson or some sort of an opportunity. And that's what I tried to do. That's what I tried to do in my career in the mortgage business. You know, with Rock of Ages, I, I, I try to observe things. So I would observe people coming into the theater, and they would come in a little late. They'd pay $15, excuse me, $15 for an alcoholic beverage. And then the lights would come on. They'd have to get in their seat, and you weren't allowed to take your drinks in the seat. So they had to guzzle it down. Or not. I'm already giving them an unpleasurable experience that now I have to win them back over. So why not allow drinking in the seats? But, you know, unions and this and that. 
I fought, and I was the very first show in Broadway history I negotiated to allow drinking in the seats. We actually had shot girls coming around so people could have a good time. And now they all do it. Now they all do it. So making observations, you know, Roger, one of the things that I did was I had a um, medical imaging company in a business that I built and, and sold it. But in that business, what I noticed was people who would go for scans, they would feel anxiety afterwards and waiting for results. And, you know, unless you have your doctor's cell phone number, which few people do, your mind plays, plays the worst part of it and where you think the worst. So why make people do that? So when I opened these medical imaging centers, I thought we were innovative. We had a radiologist right there that would sit you down, read you what happened right afterwards, right after you got dressed. You knew if it was good news and you could take a breath or if it wasn't good news, you had a plan of action. So these are just some of the lessons that I, I learned, Roger, and there's many of them. I put a ton of them in my book, Money in the Streets, um, which is which is what, what immigrants hear when they come to the U.S., right? Oh, my gosh, America is such a rich country. There's money in the streets. And you know, my mom used to tell me when I was a little boy, she says, you believe it? We thought there was money in the streets. And she would laugh, but it was sad. But before she passed away, Roger, as I learned some of these things and learned that there's opportunity everywhere, I said, you know, Mom, you were right. There really is money in the streets. You just need to be able to see it, pick it up, and do good with it. Well, you know, I've often said uh, that politics was show business for ugly people. Uh, how would you say uh, you, have a, you have experienced or, or observed parallels between the worlds of finance uh, and the world of the theater? You know, I, I had a rude awakening when I got into both doing movies, actually it was in several movies, and difference between the world of finance. Um, I hate to say this, but you know, it, it, there's a, there's there's less trust that that happens in the entertainment field. It's just it, people just for some reason there's more. It's more prevalent. Not everyone certainly is much more prevalent for people to not do what they say they were going to do, and being accustomed to doing business where. You know, with, with the vast majority of people I do business with, you could shake hands, you could trust them, they could be integrous. Most of the time, I had a rude awakening to find out that that's just, that's just not the way it's done, for the most part, from my personal experience in the entertainment world. And that was a big disappointment, and, uh, and, and it, you know, it was a hard lesson to learn. Uh, a tougher question, perhaps. How do you see artificial intelligence, AI, playing out in terms of the marketing of mortgage loans to home buyers? And will it, in your opinion, require additional regulation from the feds? I think that this is going to evolve in ways that we probably we probably can't even see. You know, there's a lot that's beyond the headlights right now that that we don't know. AI could be a good tool. It could be dangerous. It could be something that um, that becomes too relied on for kids, so they lose some creativity in trying to develop and create things. It uh, it also, as AI develops and gets smarter, um, it could replace a lot of things. So it could be an, a wonderful innovation, but there's definitely a dark and ugly side. You know, in any innovation like this, you know, whether it be fire or whether it be electricity, I mean, you know, when you when you talk about things like like the, when the internet came about, right now the internet is amazing. It's wonderful. We all rely upon it, but it also lent itself to things like 
you know, people getting scammed and duped. And, you know, even with cryptocurrency, it can be great, but it can also have an ugly side. So I see the same thing with AI. Specific to the mortgage environment, uh, I, I, I feel as if what's really important in a mortgage is that for most people, it's the largest financial transaction that they make. And if people understand that the advice that you get from a competent mortgage professional, not an order taker, but a competent mortgage professional can do more things than AI can do, can do more things than any calculator could do, because there's a human side to this that I think needs to be expressed with a mortgage. Um, and, and, it, and it can it touches so many things, your future wealth creation, your taxes, your retirement, your cash flow, that it's important to have a competent mortgage advisor as opposed to AI or an order taker or something like that. You, you need People shouldn't shop for the lowest rate and not be the only thing. You want to get a great rate, but you want to deal with somebody who really understands the financial markets and how it affects you. I was with uh, Patrick Ben David the other day, and he told me that you were, without any question, one of the smartest people he knows in the entire country. Uh, when it came to any economic oh my gosh. Matter, he was uh, very highly complimentary, and he was very excited for me that you were going to join us today on the Roger Stone Show. So, Barry Habib, I want to thank you for your time today. Uh, clearly, uh, I think uh, very, uh, uh, shall I say, revelatory uh, in telling people where the mortgage and housing industry is going in the country and how it might impact the next election. Thank you so much, Barry, for joining us on The Roger Stone Show. Roger, it is absolutely a privilege. God bless you and everything that you are doing. And a shout out to my dear friend and just just uh, an icon, Patrick Bet David, who is just a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant innovator. Thank you so much. Folks, that was Barry Habib. Just to remind you, you're on WABC Radio. We are on the Roger Stone Show, of course, and you can listen to us by going to 770 on the AM dial. If you are on the uh, in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area where I grew up, or if you're out of town, go to the WABCRadio.com uh, uh, website. Uh, I really suggest you get the WABC 77 radio app. Uh, and then you won't miss any of this great programming. So right now, go on your cell phone, call a friend, call a family member, or send them a text and tell them to tune in if they live in the area or to go to the WABCRadio.com website to listen to the balance of the Roger Stone Show. Joining us shortly is UFC welterweight champion Colby Covington, who's headed for a big, big fight I think, in Madison Square Garden. Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics, and he's a professional at the highest level Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. 
Uh, this is the Roger Stone Show on WABC Radio. WABC, making AM radio great again. And now we are joined by former interim UFC welterweight competitor, ranked number one in the UFC welterweight division, Colby Chaos Covington, uh, who is going to be fighting for the belt again very shortly. Now, yesterday there was, and I want to stress this, a rumor all over the Internet that uh, that bout, which uh, will be uh, between Leon Edwards, the Jamaican-born English raid current welterweight champion, and Colby Covington, uh, maybe, maybe November 11th in Madison Square Garden. This has not been confirmed uh, by Dana White. Uh, it was a hot rumor on the internet last night. I'm hopeful that the that the that the bout will be in the United States, will be in Madison Square Garden, because well, I want to be in the front row. I I don't want to get blood on me, but I want to be uh, in the front row. Uh, I went to my first UFC fight in Las Vegas uh, two Saturdays ago. It was one of the most extraordinary experiences I have ever I've ever had. Now I had the high honor of going with. President Donald Trump, who was a guest of Dana White uh, and received a tumultuous hand. Uh, let me make some observation. Uh, there, there are no vegans uh, at a UFC fight. There are, there's nobody snacking on tofu uh, at a UFC fight. I didn't, I didn't see any atheists. Uh, in fact, I didn't see any liberals at a UFC fight. I did see a lot of red-blooded Americans. It was one of the most incredible experiences I have ever had. Uh, and uh, I know that President Trump has said numerous times that Colby Covington, uh, who we were together in Palm Beach last Saturday, uh, is absolutely uh, among President Donald Trump's favorite fighters. He follows the sport more than I do. Welcome to the Roger Stone Show, Colby Covington. Thank you, Mr. Stone. Such an honor to be here today. <clears throat> you know I'll be using the Stone rules all in the lead-up in this promotion to the world title fight in the Garden. And, you know, I think the Garden is the best place to, to let this happen. You know, New York City still has so many conservatives in the tri-state area, but it's Trump country. It's MAGA country out there. So this fight needs to go down there. You know, they need a, a little bolt of electricity into that city because we know that the local government's just been rotten and corrupt in New York City and rotting that, that city from the inside out. So we need to bring it back and make that city great again. Well, there are certainly many, many, many patriots uh, in the greater New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area. I mean, we talk a lot of politics here on the Roger Stone Show. I just want to say these are my personal opinions. That doesn't mean that they are the opinions of the owners of the management of WABC Radio. I'm solely responsible for what I say here, uh, and I'm pretty blunt when I do it. But uh, you've been an outspoken supporter of President Trump uh, and, uh, and his America First agenda. Uh, and I salute you for that because in my more recent experience, I have found uh, that people in athletics, uh, professional athletics, uh, in entertainment, uh, in the music world, uh, they're more concerned about their career trajectory, and they don't want to talk about what they believe for fear that it might have a negative commercial impact uh, on their careers and, and, frankly, how much money they make. Not so Colby Covington. He has been very outspoken 
uh, in his support for the president uh, and for the America First agenda, and I salute you for that. Uh, but let me ask you, what is your reaction to Leon Edwards essentially taking the summer off? Uh, I think he's been punking you, making fun of you, saying that you're begging for an opportunity to fight him. I saw him uh, uh, really taunting you uh, there in Las Vegas. What's your reaction to all of that? Yeah, my, my reaction is he's just another, you know, soy boy from the left. You know, he's putting all this soy and eating all this tofu. He, you know, he's soft, Roger. He's not tough like you. He's, he's not like he doesn't follow stone rules. He's not going to put himself out there and make himself stand out. He doesn't want to take risks. You know, he's, he's a soft soy boy. He's trying to get the easiest fall and look for the easiest fights out there. He doesn't want to fight the toughest fight and competitor across the octagon from him and myself, Colby Covington, you know, that brings MAGA bombs and brings electricity every time he steps in the octagon and in an arena. So, you know, he's been laying the inevitable stone, but there is no denying greatness. And that's, that's kind of my message to a lot of conservatives, you know, and when I was speaking at Turning Point last weekend is, okay, yeah, you're right. Maybe you can't speak on your conservative beliefs because you'll get canceled. You'll get silenced by the media. But you know what you can do? You can become undeniable. And if you come undeniable with your your winning ways, then no one can, can turn you away. You, will, you won't be denied. So you have to become a winner. You have to put in the work and work hard and become undeniable. And that's what we've done. Now, have you thought about your attire for the next fight? In other words, I really think it's vitally important, going back to the Rocky movies, that you wear American-flagged MAGA uh, shorts for your upcoming bout. What do you think? Something, it's the kind of thing Apollo Creed wore. I, I love that idea, Mr. Stone. I was just going to ask you, what do you think? You're the best-dressed man in politics, man, so I, I have to get a... Uh, a page out of the chapter of the legendary goat, Roger Stone. <laughs> well, look, Leon Edwards is a uh, Jamaican. Uh, you're an American, therefore you're going to be representing America. Yeah, I think you need a, uh, you need a red, blight, white, and blue themed uh, uh, outfit for the fight. Uh, but if we can be serious here for a moment, uh, do you have a message for people your own age who seem to me to be mired down in victimhood, blaming others for their own problems, uh, blaming people for things that happened 150 years ago for their current hardships, uh, subsisting on a diet of processed food, fast food, uh, soy, milk. Uh, do you have a message for these people? Yeah, my, my message is the same that comes from the stone rolls. You know, you got to be ruthless and you got to destroy your enemies. And I know that's going to, that sounds like just such a simple thing, but it's much more complex. It's your daily work habits. It's the work you're putting in, it's the, the work and the grind you're on, the information you're taking in, not just listening to the CNN regurgitated fake news talking points. No, going out, doing the research, finding the information and finding the truth for yourself. And when you do that, then you won't become a victim. You'll become a winner and you'll become a champion. You know, in preparation for this interview, I watched a couple of videos of you fighting. Uh, I really loved your kind of patented spinning back kick. That's the best way I can, I can describe it. Just remind me not to get drunk sometime and get into a fight with you, okay? Because I, <laughs> I, I don't think I would do too well. Uh, tell people, you know, where you grew up, where you came from, what your early life was like. I think a lot of people want to know more about 
you know, you as a person as opposed just to you as a highly disciplined athlete? Yeah, so growing up, you know, I, I grew up in a blue-collar family. You know, I was in a single family. You know, my mother raised me, and she was working three jobs to put food on the table. And, you know, she gave me an outlet and an opportunity in life to chase my goal. She said, hey, Colby, I'm going to put you in wrestling, and you're not going to get bullied that way. You're going to be able to not be bullied and, and control your destiny and create your own destiny in life. So she put me on this path of wrestling. And then later in life, when I got to college, I realized, hey, there's no outlet to make financial gains in wrestling, so I'm going to have to switch to something else, another career. And that was at the time UFC was exploding on the scene. So I'm like, hey, let's go to UFC. Let's let's go, you know, like Stone Rules you taught me, you know, let's go take risks. Let's go put it all on the line. And it's better to be infamous than not be famous at all. So that's what I've done, and, and here we are today. And, you know, I like to consider myself tough, Roger Stone, but I honestly, you and POTUS are a different level of tough. The the amount of smear campaigns, I've never seen people have to endure as much hate, and and you guys don't back down to anybody. So you guys are my role models and inspiration in this career, and I'm going to get this world title for you guys in a couple months. Well, I, I really appreciate that. I asked you this the other day, but I'm going to go back to it again. Uh, I asked you if you're a boxing fan. You, of course, said yes. Who is your favorite boxer of all time? Yeah, you know, I... You know, I've changed my opinion since then, and I got I got to go with Joe Frazier. I think, uh, you know, the 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 things you told me about him, and I did a little research, and I, you know, I dug into his personality and his character. I found out that he's the type of person that I want to align myself with, and I value as the greatest boxer of all time. Wow, smoking Joe Frazier from Philadelphia. Uh, when I went to Donald Trump's wedding, when he was married to Marla Maples, I was an honored guest there at the plaza hotel in new york and they had assigned seating my wife and i were we were very excited about the fact that that we were seated with joe frazier uh, and his wife let me tell you smoking joe was a real gentleman uh and he was much much broader than boxing we talked a little bit about boxing but we we talked a little bit of politics and and uh, what was going on in the country at the time he's a great man now most americans will probably say when they're asked that question Muhammad Ali. Uh, he was also a great boxer. I had an opportunity to meet him in 1988 at the Republican National Convention. By the way, Ali was a Republican. Uh, his uh, his wife, uh, his widow, lives here in the greater Fort Lauderdale area. Has become a very good friend of mine, uh, and uh, I, I'm I'm mesmerized by that world uh, because I don't think people understand the level of commitment and discipline, particularly, that go into being a professional athlete. So specifically, Colby, when it comes to your preparation for a fight, uh, how do you prepare yourself for an epic showdown like you're going to have here uh, with with Leon Edwards in the very near future? How do you, how do you get ready for that? Yeah, Mr. Stone, it just became a lifestyle to me. Most people like to say, oh, you're in a training camp. Oh, you have eight to ten weeks to prepare for a fight. No, that that's not how I look at it. I look at it as just a lifestyle to me. I committed my whole life to it, 24-7, 365. All I do is eat, sleep, and breathe fighting. So, you know, I don't have to get ready. I'm always ready. I stay ready, and I was born ready. So, you know, just doing what I do every day, you know, putting clean foods in my body, you know, uh, 
you know, reading good articles that, that inform my mind and challenge my mind to get better, you know, and, and then obviously going in and putting in blood, sweat, and tears in the gym where, you know, I'm putting in 10, 20, 30 rounds on the bag and on pads and, and sparring. And, and if I do those things, I know it gives me the best chance to be uh, an all-time great like yourself. So would you say you prefer ground fighting to boxing? I would say that I actually enjoy boxing a lot more, the art of it. I just think it's so complex, and you can never really perfect boxing and, and the, the art of sweet science. But, you know, I do love ground fighting. I grew up, and I've done ground fighting for 28 years, most of my life. But, you know, I, I just love the complexi- complexities of, of uh, boxing now. Uh, so in your career, who would you say uh, in the octagon who hit you the hardest? Um, who hit, honestly, the the guy who hit me the hardest in the octagon was a guy named Ruthless Robbie Lawler, and he just retired uh, about a couple weeks, two weekends ago. You know, first bout Hall of Famer, former UFC champion. He was the guy, Roger, that was under your bed at night, and your mom would say, "Hey, that's the boogeyman of the of the UFC welterweight division." So this guy was ferocious, had a big punch, and you know it was an honor to share the cage with him and, and get to beat him and, and, and do so in front of the first family, the Trump family. Uh, what would you say was your greatest moment in the octagon to date? I would say my greatest moment in the octagon was, you know, in, in the United Center for the, the world championship and being able to call my shot saying that I was going to go to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and go deliver that belt to Donald Trump on his desk. That, that changed my life forever. And, and, you know, it, it, uh, it, it etched my name in a, in a different level that any of these fighters will ever touch. Most of these guys are just fighters, but we became more than just a fighter. All right. Now I'm going to get a little personal here. Uh, I know that you are single and I have read that you supposedly dated a, uh, a female UFC fighter, Pollyanna uh, in the past. Now I don't know if this was just a, a brilliant political stunt by uh, probably publicity stunt by Dana White, who is, let's face it, a master marketer when it comes to the sport. Uh, But uh, is this true? And if you had an argument with her, weren't you ever worried that she might take you down and tap you out? (laughs) Absolutely not, Mr. Stone. There's, There's a reason that women are in women's sports or men are in men's sports, you know, and that's how it should be left, you know. I'm the best man fighter in the world. And everybody knows the makeup of a man. You know, we have denser bones. We have testosterone flowing through our bodies. So there's never, ever going to be a scenario where a man can be, or a woman can beat a man. So I never had to deal with that. But, you know, honestly, let's, let's talk about your antics. You know, we need to, we, you know, Dana White and Don Stone would have had their hands full if Roger Stone would have come in the world of promotion. If you would have came to the UFC back in the, you know, the 80s, 90s, you would have taken it over. They should be giving you a pat on the back and, and be thanking you for not coming and stealing their job. Well, my, my question was obviously a joke. One thing I think you and I, President Trump, all agree is that men should not compete in women's sports. Uh, it's unbelievable that some people find that controversial. Once again, the views expressed on this show are my views, not necessarily the views of WABC radio or its management, uh, but we try to tell it like it is here on the Roger Stone Show. And by the way, if you're just tuning in, we're talking to Colby Chaos Chaos Covington, who is headed for a very big 
much anticipated championship fight uh, where he will fight uh, the uh, the uh, Jamaican born and English raised current welterweight champion Leon Edwards uh, for the belt. Uh, everybody in the UFC community is talking about this fight. There was huge speculation on the internet last night that this fight may be, may be coming as soon as November 11th, uh, supposedly or allegedly at Madison Square Garden. But that doesn't come directly from Dana White until he formally announces it. It's all rumor and speculation. One thing I know about Colby Covington is he will be ready whenever that bell rings. He'll be ready whenever the time comes. Uh, he is not a man who hides his light under a bushel when it comes to his belief in God, when it comes to his belief in America, when it comes to his outspoken support for President uh, Donald Trump. Uh, let's get back to the sport here for a minute. Uh, what is your, what's your favorite submission move, Colby? My favorite submission is a head and arm choke. It's a it's a choke that you know I grew up with in wrestling, and you weren't allowed to actually do the choke, but we would get in that position a lot because a head and arm throw is a is a common move that a lot of amateur wrestlers use. So, I would say the head and arm choke. Uh, would you say that your outspoken political views have positively or negatively impacted your very large fan base? For my fan base, you know, I think it's positively, in fact, impacted it because, you know, the silent majority of people realize that I have this platform and people are trying to silence me. You know, Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook, they've all tried to, to, to suppress my free speech. They've all tried to, you know, shadow ban me, take me out of the algorithm so people couldn't find my name in there. But everybody knows, you know, I'm, I'm the best UFC fighter and they're, they're looking for me when when I'm entertaining them on press conferences and they're trying to find me on social media and they can't find me. So I think people respect the fact that I took this road less traveled, the, the road that not a lot of people want to do because they know it's going to upset their finances. But it's not about finances to me. It's about getting my message out and standing up for what I believe in, which is uh, conservative beliefs. And let's just talk about the, you know, the poor schmuck in the FBI office is listening to this show right now. Shout out to them. Shout out to the nerds of the FBI, the corrupt, collusive government over there of the elite. Well, I mean, I, I, I let me just say it on the Roger Stone show. If you're invited, you're indicted. So uh, uh, there's no <laughs> doubt we're probably being probably being monitored uh, at this very moment. Colby, uh, where do you where do you live today? Where's your legal residence today? So my legal residence today is in Miami, Florida. Um, I train in Hialeah in the heart of uh, Miami, Florida. And uh, I, I love everything about the 305. You know, I, this has become my home. And, and you know, I, I I'm the king of it. You know, a lot of people like to call me the king of Miami. I have some great titles, uh, Roger. You know, king of Miami, people's champion, America's champion. But my most favorite title of all is Donald Trump's favorite fighter. It's an honor to represent Trump in, in the fighting field because he's the biggest and best fighter we have today. You know, the guy is up against all the collusion, all the the elites of the government trying to come after him with all these fake smear campaigns, and he keeps fighting back. So he likes to tell me that I'm the toughest guy he knows, but in reality, he's the toughest guy I know and the toughest guy on planet Earth. So uh, the, re the reason I ask you about where you lived, Hialeah, by the way, that is Trump country. It doesn't get any more uh, red than that. 
many people have asked me uh, whether after you decide to retire uh, from fighting uh, in the UFC, and obviously this is not going to happen anytime soon, you're a young man, but would you consider a political career, this is a two-part question, would you consider a political career, and if you would, I just happen to know a political consultant who's really, really good and lives pretty close to Hialeah. <laughs> Let's just say I want to leave it up to the will of the people. But if I'm getting an endorsement from Roger Stone, the most powerful force in politics, then what else do I need? Well, politics, like, uh, like fighting, like professional fighting, uh, discipline is the single most important quality. Uh, discipline, obviously the ability to raise the resources to be able to communicate uh, and the discipline to spend those resources wisely, not to get sucked up into the, the, the in-speak and the echo chamber of politics. But I've got to say, having watched many of your interviews in preparation for this interview, I think that you could have a, a great uh, future political career. Uh, it takes heart. Uh, it takes uh, it takes uh, discipline. It takes an enormous amount of hard work. Uh, it, it is all consuming. People don't understand this, but running for Congress, running for the Senate, running for the school board, running for county commissioner, running for president. It is it's all consuming. I mean, you give up so much in your life for a, for a designated period of time. Uh, it, it, it dominates every aspect of your life. I don't think that's different in preparing uh, for a welterweight championship bout, uh, and therefore the discipline would not be new to you. You're very telegenic. Uh, I love that suit you were wearing when I saw you on Saturday. Uh, it was uh, it was a standout. So you've got the you've got the style. Uh, you've got the wrap down because you know what you believe in. See, working for 40 years in American politics, I have never told a candidate what to think. I might tell them after doing some sophisticated polling what issues to emphasize and what issues to de-emphasize, but I have never once uh, in a 40-plus career in American politics told a, a, a candidate or a prospective candidate to change their position or to adopt a position they really didn't believe. In your case, I don't think this is a problem. You know what you believe, and you're outspoken about it. It's one of the reasons uh, why I admire what you have achieved so far, and I have no doubt that your greatest athletic achievements lie ahead. Uh, when do you think we're going to know uh, about when this epic bite about between you and Leon Edwards is going to take place. When are we likely to know for sure? I think for sure when they, they have a show in London this weekend and they go to Salt Lake City the following weekend. So I think within the next two weeks when they get home from Salt Lake City, they're going to get pen to paper. We're going to get this title fight on the books. And we're going to, we're going to go out there and put on the biggest spectacle of the year. You know, we're going to have... You know, the great Roger Stone in attendance front row. We're going to have Donald Trump's front row, the people's champion, the people's president, the best president of all time, Trump 2024. And you already know, Roger, we're going to the Trump Plaza, and we're going to party in the Trump Plaza with the world title for America and the people. So I think in two weeks we get this going. Well, in a dream I had last night, Colby, I pictured you holding the belt above your head, 
to massive cheers. Uh, and the things I dream about almost always come to pass. So I want to thank you for joining us here on The Roger Stone Show at WABC Radio. Uh, and once this fight gets for sure, you have an open invitation to come back here on the show at WABC, uh, and we will get into the specifics of what you're doing to get ready for what's going to be the hottest, most watched fight, perhaps in UFC history, when you go head-to-head uh, with Leon Edwards for the World Welterweight Championship. Colby Covington, thank you for joining us here on The Roger Stone Show. Thank you, Roger, and thank you, WABC, for having the legend on there and having his voice and platform. God bless you. Have a great Friday, and I look forward to talking to you soon, Mr. Stone. All right, folks, that was Colby Covington, UFC welterweight, uh, ranked number one in the UFC welterweight division. He's fighting very soon for the championship, next in line to battle for the belt, uh, and we're going to keep you up to date on that. Uh, we don't yet know the date and the place of that fight, but we are expected to learn it soon. In the meantime, thank you for joining us on WABC and The Roger Stone Show. Thank you, Colby. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Colby. Thank you, Roger. Have a great day. Great. Good job. Great job. Thank you. This is The Roger Stone Show, and now I am honored to have as our guest one of the hottest guests I guess you could have this week, Eduardo Verastugi, uh, who is a Mexican actor, producer, uh, and really the moving force behind this incredibly hot movie, Sound of Freedom. Now, I first met Eduardo when we both attended an underground Latin Catholic Mass in Miami several years ago, and it was then that he told me uh, about this project. At that point, it did not yet have a name, but he was committed to making a movie based on a real-life story that exposed the scourge of child sex trafficking, not only in the United States, but around the world. And true to his word, he has made a blockbuster movie. What's incredible to me is the way that some in the so-called mainstream media, I call them jackals, have tried to not only discredit the movie, but it's much worse than that. Claim that the, that the problem, that the outrage, that the atrocity of child sex trafficking literally does not exist. I'm talking about you, Rolling Stone, Huffington Post, and the rest of their ilk. Uh, it is vile to me. Eduardo Verastugi is a man of enormous courage and integrity. You can bet that there have been threats on his life, uh, but he, he doesn't care. He and Jim Caviezel, who is the main star of the movie, have used to make a statement on public policy that is absolutely shocking the country. Uh, this movie, if you don't know, is leaving the Indiana Jones Fair put out by others in the dusk. It is breaking box office records, uh, which is a reward that Eduardo uh, and Jim Caviezel deeply, deeply 
Absolutely deserve. It is my honor now to introduce Mexican patriot, uh, man of the world, devout Christian, my brother in Christ, and probably one of the most important activists and voices in the country today against child sex trafficking. Okay, now we are joined by Eduardo Verastegui, uh, who is an uh, actor, a uh, producer, entrepreneur, businessman, philanthropist, uh, and uh, the producer and the moving force behind this incredibly powerful movie, Sound of Freedom. Sound of Freedom has grossed over $100 million, despite the active opposition of the jackals in the fake media uh, and the entire power structure of Hollywood. This movie is taking America by storm. That's because it is a, uh, a edge-of-your-seat thriller based on an incredible true story of former government agent Tim Ballard uh, and the lengths that he goes to to save children. It's a powerful tale, and Eduardo joins us now. Thank you, hermano. Thank you, Roger. Uh, this, is, uh, this is amazing. I'm living the American dream. At the same time, I'm living the Mexican dream. I'm from Mexico, from a very small town, northern Mexico, in the state of Tamaulipas. And I grew up always thinking about the American dream, that one day I would love to come to America, you know, uh, learn English, and maybe uh, do something big. And, and I can't believe that I'm 49 now, uh, and I'm living this dream that I that, that started when I was seven years old, eight years old. So God bless America. This nation, uh, Roger, has been such an amazing, such an amazing blessing in my life. This country opened the door to my dreams, and I'm very grateful, very grateful to this country, very grateful to Mexico where I was born. And that's why my message is very simple. We are not just neighbors; we are brothers and sisters. And when when the good people of Mexico the, you know, and the good people of America, they meet, good things happen. Sound of freedom happens. Two Mexican filmmakers, Alejandro Monteverde, the director, and me, the producer, when we meet uh, two American heroes, Tim Ballard and Gene Caviso, we meet, we work together. What is the result? Sound of freedom, a movement that is designed to raise awareness so together we can eradicate once and for all child trafficking. I met Tim Ballard eight years ago, Roger, in Los Angeles. And when you meet a true American hero, I mean, I was inspired. But at the same time, I was in shock. I'm very sad when he told me what he does. When he explained to me in details that he travels around the world with ex-Navy SEALs rescuing children. They go undercover, of course, to the darkest corners of the planet to rescue children that are kidnapped for sexual exploitation. When he explained to me in details what these children are going through, these kids, I mean, I'm talking about five, six, seven-year-old kids and girls, little girls, they're being raped 10 to 15 times a day for many years. And after many years of being raped, when, the, when they're not fresh anymore, because that's the kind of vocabulary that these perverts are using, they go to the second business, which is the black market organ traffic. They kill them, they open them, and they sell their organs. Of course, man, I couldn't sleep. It was very sad. But I, but I remember when Tim Ballard told Alejandro and me, hey, guys, I know, I know that what, what I just told you is very sad. I know. I know it's very sad, man. But you know what? It's more sad now that you know it if you do nothing. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And that's when I realized that a new mission was about to give birth in my life. Well, I'm a filmmaker. I have a weapon of mass instruction and inspiration. Movies, movies can move people. Films can start a movement if you do the right thing. I mean, you tell the right story and you have the best story, team. I would love to make a movie. Alejandro would love to make a movie about your life. 
And he said, well, before you commit, I need to tell you something. We have a lot of friends, Eduardo and Alejandro, you know, ex-Navy SEALs, ex-CIA agents, FBI agents, but we have a lot of enemies too. And those enemies will be yours because we are fighting an industry. We're talking about 150, more than $150 billion industry every year. So do you realize that we are fighting this, you know, this globalist? So do you want to welcome our enemies in your life? Are you sure? And I remember like yesterday, Roger, when I closed my eyes for a second and I said, yes, it's more dangerous. Yes, it's very dangerous. I'm sorry. It's very dangerous, but it's more dangerous not to do it in the long term. What if this is my son? What would I do? I will do everything for my son, right? So I don't want to wait until this tragedy happens to me so I can wake up. God reveals this information through Tim Muller to me now for a reason, not for me to look the other way around, but to act upon it, to, to do something about it. And I told him, hermano, I welcome your enemies. Your enemies are mine. So let's do this together. Let's make the sound of freedom. Let's see how far we can go. Let's pray to God that he will guide us in this journey. And uh, he's been guiding us in this journey. Uh, I mean, you know, I've been going to mass every day. I'm from Mexico, so I'm Catholic. I pray my rosary every day. I'm asking God, please, this is your children. Your children are not for sale. God's children are not for sale. Can you please guide us and tell us what to do so we can start this movement, uh, so we can raise awareness, so together we can end child trafficking? And he's been guiding us all these last eight years, uh, Roger. And now we're just, I can believe that we just beat India, uh, Indiana Jones, uh, the biggest company in the world, Disney. I can believe that we just beat, uh, well, not not we, God beat them. He used broken instruments. I'm a broken instrument, but I know that if I put myself in God's hands, he can do miracles. And he's doing a miracle right now with this movie. I'm so grateful, man. God is amazing, Roger. Thank you for this interview, brother. Now, I understand you had a very, very hard time. Uh, initially, you had to raise the money for production. That wasn't easy. Uh, but the Lord smiled on you and, you, and you were able to do so. But then you had a very hard time finding anybody, any big company willing to distribute this movie. Tell us about that. Well, you know, when, when the script was finished, the first obstacle, well, we had a lot of obstacles, but one of the biggest ones was uh, to find the right actor for this movie. You know, it's, it's, it's a true story. It's a powerful true story. And, and, and I wanted someone, you know, a big, big movie star in Hollywood and that so it can help us with, because of their leadership, you know, to reach millions of people around the world. But every actor passed for them. Every actor passed. More than 20 actors. No, no, this is not for me until I was so, I was very sad when I called uh, Tim Ballard. I said, brother, I know that you trust in Alejandro, you trust in me. Uh, we, we, you know, Alejandro wrote a beautiful story about this rescue mission that took place in Cartagena, Colombia. You know, uh, that was his first rescue mission that he did, Tim Ballard, and that's what the movie's about. But brother, every actor passed. I mean, do you have a do you have a dream actor? And I was hoping that he didn't mention any of the guys that already passed, right? So who do you want to play you? I asked Tim Ballard, and he said, Jesus Christ. No, 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 that's too expensive. Are you crazy? No, no, no. He, saw, he started laughing. You know, I, I thought he went crazy for a second. He said, no, no, I'm talking about the guy who played Jesus Christ in the movie, The Passion of Christ, the Mel Gibson movie. He said, oh, okay, I, I know him, but why him? He's taller than you, he's bigger than you, and he doesn't look like you. He said, Eduardo, he's a godly man. That's all I need for this movie. He's an amazing actor. More important, he's a godly man, and I, I want an ambassador of freedom that will stay with us forever, and he will stay with us forever. He's a brave man. He's a brave heart. He's a patriot. He's one of us. Okay, so I sent him a text message. He answered me right away. I thought, Roger, he was going to do, he was going to answer, you know, the typical, you know, Hollywood actor uh, answer, you know, call my agent, send the script, send the offer, and then nothing happened. 
But no, he answered right away. I met with him and Alejandro Monteverde, the director, and we pitched the story. He starts crying. He said, send me the script. I mean, I mean. And so now we had a true story, a great script, a great actor, and we started the movie. We finished the movie, and at the same time we were filming the movie, we made a great, great deal with Fox Latin America. They were like our angels back in the days. They, they helped us. They were very... Um, very happy, very happy with with uh, with the movie. In the contract, it says, we're going to do this movie, Eduardo. We're going to do a potential sequel. We're going to do a TV series. We're going to do a documentary. And I was like, wow, this is too good to be true. We have 20th Century Fox with us. Working with us is amazing. And we signed the deal, and everything was too good to be true. And then, and then, Disney buy Fox. When they bought Fox for $80 billion, all my friends at Fox, all my angels, they walk away. Now, what am I going to do? Disney saw the movie like three or four times. Disney Latin America. They said, this is not for us, Eduardo. This movie is not for us. So uh, let's see what can we do because you have a contract here and you have certain obligations. Yes, but you have certain obligations too. Anyway, making a long story short, it took us like a year and a half to negotiate everything. Finally, they gave me the movie back to us. Uh, we're free again. I started knocking doors with uh, Netflix, Amazon, nothing, nothing. This is not for us. Other studios, they never respond to our calls. They never respond to our calls. And I thought, you know, I started doing this um, campaign in Mexico, uh, touring my entire country. You know, we have 32 states in Mexico. I was asking every governor, I was calling every governor, can you host a screen in your state and invite every leader in your state? And then we show the movie. And then at the end, we send an agreement where we commit to end child trafficking and, and, and let's do it together. And they all say yes. Some some of them were left, some of them right, up and down. It doesn't matter. It's about children. It's not, it's not about politics. It's not about politics. It's about saving children. And they answer. They responded. And I was doing my, I don't know, it was maybe the state number 20th, when I was just praying to God, please, and angels, to rescue this movie. And then I got a phone call from Angel Studios. And they rescued the movie. They decided to put it on July 4th. And I can't believe what, what is just, I mean, I'm afraid to wake up, brother, because I, sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm in a dream, in a very long dream, but it seems like it's reality, no? Uh, folks, Sound of Freedom, the movie, stars Academy Award winners, uh, winner Mira Sorvino, as well as Jim Caviezel, also Bill Camp, Jose Zuniga. But Eduardo, you yourself, I think this is very cool. You play a part in the movie as well as being the producer. Uh, what role did you end up in here? Well, you know, uh, I met Tim Barrett eight years ago through Paul Hutchinson, uh, a, a guy who is another hero, American hero who rescued children. And he's the one who introduced me to uh, Tim Ballard. So when the script was finished, I really wanted to play him because uh, he's the one who financed the whole operation that took place in Cartagena, Colombia. So I asked Paul, hey, Paul, you know, I, I cannot do American accent, brother, because, you know, I started learning English when I was 28, so I barely can understand myself sometimes when I speak English. There is no way I'm going to do an American accent. Is there any way we can turn Paul Hutchinson into Pablo Delgado? And you are undercover still, so that will protect your, your entity, and, um, and it can be based on a true character, you know, a, a true hero, but let's turn it into a Latino hero. And he agreed. He said, hey, it will be a pleasure uh, that you will play me in the Latino version. And that's why we changed his name, Paul Hutchinson, to Pablo Delgado. And he said, it was an amazing. I mean, it was very difficult because I was producing. I was raising funds. 
I was trying to, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, rescue the film because some of our investors pulled out at the last at the last minute, and at the same time I had to do this role. So imagine everything in one, brother. Somehow it it, it all came together. Thank God. But it was an amazing uh, role. It was a a, a billionaire, uh, successful leader who, in the beginning, he was not interested in uh, supporting this mission. I think because he was afraid, he was he didn't want to get involved in in, in something like this. But then next thing you know. Uh, Tim Battle was very, very wise, and he showed him a picture of a little girl. Hey, if you don't care about the millions, can you at least please help him to save this little girl? And, and she's in Cartagena, Colombia, and, and he agreed, and then they went to this adventure to save this little girl, and because of trying to save this little girl, they end up saving more than 50 uh, children. In the real in real life, actually, it was three operations at the same time, uh, Roger. They rescued more than 120 uh, children. But the only reason why I only told one story is because it was very difficult in two hours to tell the three operations that took place at the same time in Cartagena, Colombia, and in Haiti. Uh, it was actually four op- four operations, three in one country in Colombia, the other one in, in Haiti. But a miracle happened, and, and I don't know if you heard the story where when Jim Caviezel said yes to this movie, he called me and he said, Eduardo, I have one challenge. My wife saw Narcos Colombia on Netflix, and she's afraid of me going to Colombia to film this movie. Uh, can we film this somewhere else? He said, no, it, it, happened, it happened in Colombia. It has to be in Colombia. So I called Tim Ballard, and I said, I have a good news and a bad news, brother. The good news, Gene Caviezel is in. He said, yes. Bad news is his wife doesn't want him to go to Colombia because she saw Narcos Colombia on Netflix. And, you know, media influence, media influence how people think, unfortunately. Unfortunately, these companies are doing so much damage to our countries because they don't put the camera in the good stories. They put the camera in the bad stories, and, and that's really uh, sad. But anyway, what can we do? And he said, tell them that if he, 30 ex-Navy SEALs will be enough to protect him. So I passed the message, green light, we're in Colombia, 30 ex-Navy SEALs protecting Jim Caviezel. But what happened a week later, half of them are not, not on set. So for, for almost, I don't know, five weeks, half of those 30 ex-Navy SEALs were not on set. So I'm like, I'm not going to tell anybody. I don't want to skirt Gene Caviezel because he's very focused on on doing his character, you know, the movie and everything. Next thing you know, brother, I'm reading a a local newspaper that it says, Colombia government arrested traffickers in Cartagena, Colombia, and rescued more than 200 children who were kidnapped for sexual exploitation and more details. So I take the newspaper, the, the article to Tim Ballard, and I said, look, brother, like in the movie, it's very similar. This just happened just last week. And he smiles and he said, Eduardo, that was awesome. What? Well, you know, half of the guys who were not on set, they were walking in Cartagena, Colombia the first week, and these people approached them because they're like 35-year-old guys, you know, Americans with uh, shorts and everything. And, hey, amigos, gringos, you want senoritas, young girls? I mean, we have everything for you. They didn't know that these guys were experts in rescuing children, right? So they follow up the convers- They follow up with the conversation. Next thing you know, they ask uh, help from the uh, Amer- uh, Colombia government, and they did the undercover operation along with them, and they rescued the children. But because we, they still working with us undercover, they give all the credit to Colombia government. So how God works, brother? Thank God for Jim Caviezel's wife saying no in the beginning because of that no, that bad news. What I thought was a bad news. 30 Navy SEALs came to protect Jinka Vizola, and because of them, half of them end up rescuing more than 200 children before the film was even finished, while the film was, um, while we were filming the movie that took place in Cartagena, Colombia. Isn't that amazing? 
Uh, folks, if you're just tuning in, this is the Roger Stone Show on WABC Radio, making AM radio great again. And we're interviewing Eduardo Verastegui, uh, the Mexican actor, producer, entrepreneur, but most importantly today, the producer of the blockbuster hit Sound of Freedom. Uh, this incredible movie was shown uh, at a, at a uh, private showing, screened for President Donald Trump and the members of his Bedminster Golf Club this past week. Uh, Eduardo, what was that experience like? Oh, man, it was unbelievable, hermano, unbelievable. Um, I started working with President Trump when, when in the primaries, when uh, back in days when he committed he was going to uh, elect uh, pro-life judges in the Supreme Court. And I'm a pro, you know, I'm Catholic, so I'm pro-life. And when I saw the other options, when he won the primaries, and, when, and I saw Biden talking about nine months abortion, you know, he's going to fight for that. There's no way we're going to support this other guy. We need to support Trump because he's going to defend life. So I started doing everything in my hands to bring all the Latino, all the Latinos to vote pro-life, vote pro-life, vote for Trump. And and when he won, he promised one judge. He ended up giving us three judges. Can you imagine? He changed the whole. I mean, after 50 years of culture of death in the United States where more than 60 million babies were killed through abortion. And, and, and this man who's an outsider, who's not a politician, he comes into place and he cleaned the house. He, you know, he, he um, elect three pro-life judges and changed the, the most important Supreme Court in the world. So imagine the impact that that, that Supreme Court uh, decisions uh, is not only the impact in America. It's, you know, you're, you guys are the big brothers. Whatever happened here in America is not is not only the impact is here, it's in the whole world. So what he did was amazing in, in many other uh, uh, areas. So for me to work in a movie that one day was going to be hosted by him, uh, it, was, it was a dream came, uh, come true. I mean, so many dreams are coming true, brother. Let me tell you something. I saw a documentary, and I don't know if you produced it or you were involved, called Get Me Roger Stone. And when I saw that documentary, Literally, I started thinking, like, I want to meet this guy. I want to meet this guy. He's a genius. You know, he, I mean, and I, I can't believe I'm doing an interview with you right now. I met you a few years ago in Miami. We became friends. We went to Latin Mass together. We prayed together. Now I'm, I'm you know, uh, President Donald Trump hosting a screening, promoting the movie Sound of Freedom, uh, telling me that we're going to work together because we need to end child trafficking together. If the United States is the number one consumer of child sex and Mexico is the number one provider, uh, we need to shake hands, and we're going to end this together. This is a dream come true. Uh, he's he's going to fight. I mean, he's going to take care of those cartels and all these people who are in this involved in this crime. I believe that with with his leadership and our leadership in Mexico, uh, I'm a filmmaker. I'm not a politician, but I, I I'm doing something with this movie right now. And I think when you combine politics, art, ethics, values to serve the nations, you know, you can achieve great things, brother. Now, you uh, started with the Mexican pop group Cairo. Uh, you became a, a, a star through the telenovelas. Uh, You're Tele, extremely well-known. My Spanish is not all that great, but bear with it's me. It's perfect. Uh, you're very, very well-known in your country. Now you have this extraordinary achievement where you have taken a stand against child sex trafficking. We've seen this in our own country, the Oliver Stone movie JFK had a profound effect on the American people, uh, and it caused them to demand answers uh, about the uh, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, 
many, many millions of Americans even today doubt the conclusions of the now thoroughly debunked Warren Commission regarding that horrific event in American history. So a lot of people ask me this. Uh, it is rumored uh, that many, many, many people in Mexico and some people in the United States are seriously urging you to run for president of Mexico. Given the fact that Ronald Reagan was an actor, uh, he was never a career politician, one of our most effective and popular presidents, Donald Trump didn't come from the world of politics, he came from the world of business. Uh, again, one of our most successful uh, and effective presidents was before, will be again, in my opinion. Eduardo, tell my audience, are you going to run for president of Mexico? I'm thinking about it, brother. I'm praying about it. You know, any project, any project that is a big project, I mean, it requires a lot of fasting and a lot of praying, a lot of praying and discernment because, and this one will be the biggest project of my life. Um, so I'm taking this very serious and I've been praying for a while. I'm fasting for a while. I, I, wanna, I want God to answer me. Uh, I love my country. I'm willing to die for my country and for my people to glorify God. But at the end of the day, it's not what I want, but what God wants from me. What What is exactly what he wants me to do in relationship with this invitation that I've been uh, receiving from so many people, as you mentioned, in Mexico and in America. Uh, a lot of Mexicans, we have like, you know, millions of Mexicans here in the United States that they can vote from, uh, from, from the United States. And they're asking me, please, uh, we need an outsider. Uh, we're tired. People are tired, Roger, of politicians in Mexico. They're tired of this political parties, you know, we are, Mexico is a very rich country where a lot of poor people are living. It doesn't make any sense. It's, there's a lot of corruption and, and things are, Mexico is not doing well. It's not doing well right now. And, but, you know, I, what I did is I started a very profound uh, prayer period of time uh, that is going to end September 15. So by September 15, I'm going to answer. I have to make the decision. Has to be soon. Few more weeks, and I told President Trump because we talk about this and and the other day, and I and I told him, you know, you will be the first one to know. You know, before my, of course, my mother will be first, and then I told President Trump, you will be the second one. You know, uh, you you will be the first one to know after my mother, and um, and I think if he, if the answer is yes, I can only imagine what we can do together. President Trump and myself, with the people, with the American people and with the Mexican people. The majority of Mexican people are Catholics. We are a Catholic country being governed by anti-Catholic government for decades, Roger. And, uh, and, and in, enough is enough. Our country has been raped for decades by these politicians who are professional thieves, professional thieves and professional liars. So please pray for me. I, I want to ask your audience to pray for me while I'm doing this, the sermon. And... Um, and brother, um, and if I, you know, if the answer is yes, expect my call, because I'm going to say to my right hand, get me Roger Stone. Uh, Eduardo, I think you're, you're embarked on exactly the right strategy. You need to pray over this. Uh, I learned through a, through a scalding, a horrific experience myself that if you will reach out to the Lord, if you will get right with God, uh, that he will lift you up, that he will inspire mm -hmm. you. Uh, that he will, in my case, save me from my persecutors. Now, I know 
that there are people listening to this right now who are snickering, elites are laughing, saying, oh yeah, it's just it's just another dirty trick, it's a, it's a pose, it's a facade. You know what? I don't really care what they think. I only care no, what brother. he thinks. That's all I care, that's all I care about. Exactly. We shouldn't care what people are saying. You know, it's all about God. I made this commitment 20 years ago. I've been trying my best every day. You know, this is a work in progress, brother. We're called to be saints, but it's impossible to achieve that, you know, uh, on your own. You know, that's why I go to Mass every day, not because I'm a good person, because I need God in my life. I'm a broken instrument. You know, if you take, if you remove God from my life, I collapse in one second, one second, you know. So I pray the rosary every day. I go to Mass every day for the last... 20 years. This is not something that started yesterday. It's been 20 years asking God every day to help me, to heal me, to, you know, to give me what I need so I can serve him and serve my brothers and sisters. And it's an everyday. It's like eating. You don't eat just once and, and then you don't eat uh, ever again, right? Same thing. We need to eat. You know, the soul needs to be fed. And that's why I take communion every day, because I want Jesus in my heart, in my soul, in my mind, in my decisions. Every day without him, I'm nothing. And especially if I'm making, you know, I have to make this decision. Can you imagine how in the world you're going to be thinking that you're going to be leading a country, governing a country on your own with your friends? Are you kidding me? That's that's too much pride. You have to be in your knees every day asking the Holy Spirit, asking God, you know, guide me in every decision. And that's the secret of success. Put God in the center of, of your life, the center of your decisions, the center of your house, the center of everything center of your heart, your mind, your soul. You want to you, you want to know what, what's the secret of failure? Remove God from your life. Well, I must say, as a father, as a grandfather, as a great-grandfather, I found this film absolutely gut-wrenching. Uh, I really urge folks to see it. By the way, if you can't afford to see the movie, you can go to angel.com slash freedom. That's angel.com slash freedom. And you can actually get a ticket to see this movie for free. Uh, it is well worth the experience. Uh, I want to thank uh, Eduardo Verastegui, uh for joining us here uh, on The Roger Stone Show. Uh, and folks, stand by because Ernie Anastos is up next. Eduardo, thank you and God bless you for being here. Oh, God bless you, brother. God bless America. God bless Mexico. Let's make America and Mexico great again. Let's make America and Mexico free again. God bless you, brother. Thank you so much for this interview. God bless you and Godspeed. Thank you, folks. That's it for the Roger Stone Show. Stand by for Ernie Anastos next here on WABC Radio. Hi, it's Lou Dobbs for Priority Gold, America's precious metals dealer. These are volatile times with high inflation, soaring debt, wars on multiple continents, and rising financial stress. Central banks are buying gold to diversify their reserves, so are many Americans. Call Priority Gold and find out how precious metals can help you diversify your portfolio. They're highly rated and happy to help. Call 1-866-303-6357 or get a free gold guide at PriorityGoldGuide.com. That's Priority. PriorityGoldGuide.com